Chapter Eleven of the Mintage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mintage by Albert Hubbard, the Master. He who influences the thought of his time influences the thought of all the time that follows and he has made his impress upon eternity giovanni bellini was his name yet when people who loved beautiful pictures spoke of john everyone knew who was meant but to those who worked at art he was the master he was two inches under six feet in height strong and muscular in spite of his seventy summers his carriage was erect and there was a jaunty suppleness about his gait that made him seem much younger in fact no one would have believed he had lived over his threescore and ten were it not for the iron-gray hair that fluffed out all around under the close-fitting black cap and the bronzed complexion sun-kissed by wind and by weather which formed a trinity of opposites that made people turn and stare queer stories used to be told about him he was a skillful gondolier and it was the daily row back and forth from the lido that gave him that face of bronze folks said he ate no meat and drank no wine and that his food was simply ripe figs in the season with coarse rye bread and nuts then there was that funny old hunchback a hundred years old at least and stone deaf who took care of the gondola spending the whole day waiting for his master washing the trim graceful blue-black boat arranging the awning with the white cords and tassels and polishing the little brass lions at the sides people tried to question the old hunchback but he gave no secrets away the master always stood up behind and rode while down on the cushions rode the hunchback the guest of honor there stood the master erect plying the oar his long black robe tucked up under the dark blue sash that exactly matched the color of the gondola the man's motto might have been ich nien, or that passage of scripture he that is greatest among you shall be your servant suspended around his neck by a slender chain was a bronze medal presented by the vote of the signoria when the great picture of the transfiguration was unveiled if this medal had been a crucifix and you had met the wearer in san marco one glance at the finely chiseled features the black cap and the flowing robe and you would have said at once the man was a priest vicar general of some important diocese but seeing him standing erect on the stern of a gondola the wind caressing the dark gray hair you would have been perplexed until your gondolier explained in serious undertone that you had just passed the greatest painter in all of venice john the master then if you showed curiosity and wanted to know further the gondolier would have told you more about this strange man the canals of venice are the highways and the gondoliers are like bus drivers in piccadilly they know everybody and are in close touch with all the secrets of state when you get to the gindeca and tie up for lunch over a bottle of chianti your gondolier will tell you this the hunchback there in the gondola rode by the master 
is the devil who has taken that form just to be with and guard the greatest artist the world has ever seen yes senora that clean-faced man with his frank wide open brown eyes is in league with the evil one he is the man who took young tiziano from cadore into his shop right out of a glass factory and made him a great artist getting him commissions and introducing him everywhere and how about the divine giorgione who called him father oh ho and who is giorgione the son of some unknown peasant woman and if bellini wanted to adopt him treat him as his son indeed kissing him on the cheek when he came back just from a day's visit to mestre whose business was it oh ho beside that his name isn't giorgione it is giorgio barbarelli and didn't this giorgio barbarelli and tiziano from cadore and espero carbone and that gustavo from nuremberg and the others paint most of john's pictures surely they did the old man simply washes in the backgrounds and the boys do the work above all old john does is to sign the picture sell it and pocket the proceeds carpaccio helps him too carpaccio who painted the loveliest little angel sitting cross-legged playing the biggest mandolin you ever saw in your life that is genius you know the ability to get someone else to do the work and then capture the ducats and the honors for yourself of course john knows how to lure the boys on something has to be done in order to hold them john buys a picture from them now and then his studio is full of their work better than he can do oh he knows a good thing when he sees it these pictures will be valuable some day and he gets them at his own price it was antonello of messina who introduced oil painting into venice before that they mixed their paints with water milk or wine but when antonello came along with his dark lustrous pictures he set all artistic venice astir john bellini discovered the secret they say by feigning to be a gentleman and going to the newcomer and sitting for his picture he it was who discovered that antonello mixed his colors with oil oh ho of course not all of the pictures in his studio are painted by the boys some are painted by that old dutchman what's his name oh yes dira alberto dira of nuremberg two nuremberg painters were in that very gondola last week just where you sit they are here in venice now taking lessons from john they said john was up there to nuremberg and lived a month with dira they worked together drank beer together i suppose and caroused john is very strict about what he does in venice but you can never tell what a man will do when he is away from home the germans are a roistering lot but they do say they can paint me i have never been up there and do not want to go either there are no canals there to be sure they print books in nuremberg it was up there somewhere that they invented type a lazy scheme to do away with writing they are a thrifty lot those germans they give me my fare and a penny more just a single penny and no matter how much i have talked and pointed out the wonderful sights and imparted useful information known to me alone only one penny extra think of it yes printing was first done at mayence by a german gutenberg about sixty years ago one of gutenberg's workmen went up to nuremberg and taught others how to design and cast type this man alberto dyrer helped them designing the initials and making their title pages by cutting the design on a wood block 
then covering this block with ink laying a sheet of paper upon it placing it in a press and then when the paper is lifted off it looks exactly like the original drawing in fact most people couldn't tell the difference and here you can print thousands of them from one block bellini made drawings for title pages and initials for aldous and nicholas jensen venice is the greatest printing place in the world and yet the business began here only thirty years ago the first book printed here was in fourteen hundred sixty nine by john of spare there are two hundred licensed printing presses here and it takes usually four men to a press two to set the type and get things ready and two to run the press this does not count of course the men who write the books and those who make the type and cut the blocks from which they print the pictures for the illustrations at first you know the books they printed in venice had no title pages initials or illustrations my father was a printer and he remembers when the first large initials were printed before that the spaces were left blank and the books were sent out to the monasteries to be completed by hand john and gentile had a good deal to do about cutting the first blocks for initials they got the idea i think from nuremberg now there are dutchmen down here from amsterdam learning how to print books and paint pictures several of them are in john's studio i hear every once in a while i get them for a trip to the lido or to morano gentile bellini is his brother and looks very much like him the grand turk at constantinople came here once and saw john bellini at work in the great hall he had never seen a good picture before and was amazed he wanted the senate to sell john to him thinking he was a slave they humored the pagan by hiring gentile bellini to go instead loaning him out for two years so to speak gentile went and the sultan who never allowed anyone to stand before him all having to grovel in the dirt treated gentile as an equal gentile even taught the old rogue to draw a little and they say the painter had a key to every room in the palace and was treated like a prince well they got along all right until one day gentile drew the picture of the head of john the baptist on a charger a man's head doesn't look like that when it's cut off said the grand turk contemptuously gentile had forgotten that the turk was on familiar ground perhaps the light of the sun knows more about painting than i do said gentile as he kept right on at his work i may not know much about painting but i'm no fool in some other things i might name was the reply the sultan clapped his hand three times and two slaves appeared from opposite doors one was a little ahead of the other and as this one approached the sultan with a single swing of the snickersnee snipped off his head this teaches us that obedience to our superiors is its own reward but the lesson was wholly lost on gentile bellini for he did not even remain to examine the severed head for art's sake the thought that it might be his turn next was supreme and he leaped through a window taking the sash with him making his way to the docks he found a sailing vessel loading with fruit and bound for venice a small purse of gold made the matter easy the captain of the boat secreted him and in four days he was safely back to st mark's giving thanks to god for his deliverance no i didn't say john was a rogue i only told you what others say i'm only a poor gondolier why should i trouble myself about what great folks do i simply tell you what i hear 
it may be so and it may not god knows there is that pascal salvini he has a rival studio and when that genoese cristoforo colombo was here and made his stopping place at bellini's studio pascal told everyone that colombo was a lunatic and bellini another for encouraging him to show his foolish maps and charts now they do say that colombo has discovered a new world and italians are feeling troubled in conscience because they did not fit him out with ships instead of forcing him to go to spain and no i didn't say bellini was a hypocrite pascal's pupils say so and once they followed him over to morano three barca loads and my gondola beside you see it was like this twice a week just after sundown we used to see john bellini untie his boat from the landing there behind the doge's palace turn the prow and beat out for morano with no companion but that deaf old caretaker twice a week tuesdays and fridays always at just the same hour regardless of the weather we would see the old hunchback light the lamps and in a few moments the master would appear tuck up his black robe step into the boat take the oar and away they would go it was always to morano and always to the same landing one of our gondoliers had followed them several times just out of curiosity finally it came to the ears of pascal that john took this regular trip to morano it's a rendezvous said pascal it is worse than that an orgy among those lace-makers and the rogues of the glass-works oh to think that john should stoop to such things at his age his pretended asceticism is but a mask and at his age the pascal students took it up and once came in collision with that tiziano of cadore who they say broke a boat-hook over the head of one of them who had spoken ill of the master but this did not silence the talk and one dark night when the air was full of flying mist one of pascal's students came to me and told me that he wanted me to take a party over to morano the weather was so bad that i refused to go the wind blew in gusts sheet lightning filled the eastern sky and all honest men but poor belated gondoliers had hied them home i refused to go had i not seen john the painter go not half an hour before well if he could go others could go i refused to go except for double fare he accepted and placed the double fare in silver in my palm then he gave a whistle and from behind the corners came trooping enough swashbuckler students to swamp my gondola i let in just enough to fill the seats and pushed off leaving several standing on the stone steps cursing me and everything and everybody as my boat slid away in the fog and headed on our course i glanced back and saw the three barca loads following in my wake there was much muffled talk and orders from someone in charge to keep silence but there was passing of strong drink and then talk and from it i gathered that these were all students from pascal's out on one of those student carousals intent on heaven knows what it was none of my business we shipped considerable water and some of the students were down on their knees praying and bailing bailing and praying at last we reached the morano landing all got out the barkers tied up and i tied up too determined to see what was doing a strong drink was passed and a low heavy-set fellow who seemed to be captain charged all not to speak but to follow him and do as he did we took a side street where there was little travel and followed through the dark and dripping way fully a half mile down there at that end of the island called the sailors broglio 
where they say no man's life is safe if he has a silver coin or two. There was much music in the wine shops, and shouts of mirth and dancing feet on stone floors. But the rain had driven every one from the streets. We came to a long, low stone building that used to be a theater, but was now a dance hall upstairs and a warehouse below. There were lights upstairs and sounds of music. The stairway was dark, but we felt our way up, and on tiptoe advanced to the big double door, from under which the light streamed. We had received our orders, and when we got to the landing we stood there just an instant. Now we have him, John the hypocrite, whispered the stout man in a hoarse breath. We burst in the doors with a whoop and a bang. The change from the dark to the light sort of blinded us at first. We all supposed that there was a dance in progress, of course, and the screams from women were just what we expected. But when we saw several overturned easels, and an old man half nude and too scared to move, seated on a model throne, we did not advance into the hall as we intended. That one yell we gave was all the noise we made. We stood there in a bunch, just inside the door, sort of dazed and uncertain. We did not know whether to retreat or charge on through the hall as we had intended. We just stood there like a lot of driveling fools. Keep right at your work, my good people. Keep right at your work, called a pleasant voice. I see we have some visitors. And John Bellini came forward. His robe was still tucked up under the blue sash, but he had laid aside his black cap, and his tumbled gray hair looked like the aureole of a saint. Keep right at your work, he said again, and then came forward and bade us welcome and begged us to have seats. I dared not run away, so I sat down on one of the long seats that were ranged around the wall. My companions did the same. There must have been fifty easels, all ranged in a semicircle around the old man who posed as a model. Several of the easels had been upset, and there was much confusion when we entered. Just help us to arrange things. That is right. Thank you, said John to the stout man who was captain of our party. To my astonishment, the stout man was doing just as he was bid, and was pacifying the women students and straightening up their easels and stools. I was interested in watching John walking around helping this one with a stroke of his crayon, saying a word to that, smiling and nodding to another. I just sat there and stared. These students were not regular art students. I could see that plainly. Some were children, ragged and bare-legged. Others were old men who had worked in the glass factories, and surely with hands too old and stiff to ever paint well. Still others were women and young girls of the town. I rubbed my eyes and tried to make it out. The music we heard I could still hear. It came from the wine shop across the way. I looked around, and what do you believe? My companions had all gone. They had sneaked out one by one and left me alone. I watched my chance, and when the master's back was turned, I tiptoed out too. When I got down on the street, I found I had left my cap, but I dared not go back after it. I made my way down to the landing, half running, and when I got there not a boat was to be seen. The three barkers and my gondola were gone. I thought I could see them, out through the mist a quarter of a mile away. I called aloud, but no answer came back but the hissing wind. I was in despair. They were stealing my boat, and if they did not steal it, it would surely be wrecked, my all, my precious boat. 
I cried and wrung my hands, I prayed, and the howling winds only ran shrieking and laughing around the corners of the building. I saw a glimmering light down the beach at a little landing. I ran to it, hoping some gondolier might be found who would row me over to the city. There was one boat at the landing, and in it a hunchback, sound asleep, covered with a canvas. It was John Bellini's boat. I shook the hunchback into wakefulness and begged him to row me across to the city. I yelled into his deaf ears, but he pretended not to understand me. Then I showed him the silver coin, the double fare, and tried to place it in his hand, but no, he only shook his head. I ran up the beach, still looking for a boat. An hour had passed. I got back to the landing just as John came down to his boat. I approached him and explained that I was a poor worker in the glass factory who had to work all day and half the night, and as I lived over in the city and my wife was dying, I must get home. Would he allow me to ride with his highness? Certainly, with pleasure, with pleasure, he answered, and then pulling something from under his sash, he said, Is this your cap, senor? I took my cap, but my tongue was paralyzed for the moment, so I could not thank him. The wind had died down. The rain had ceased, and from between the blue-black clouds the moon shone out. John rode with a strong, fine stroke, singing a Te Deum Laudamus softly to himself the while. I lay there and wept, thinking of my boat, my all, my precious boat. We reached the landing, and there was my boat, safely tied up, not a cushion, not a cord missing. John Bellini? He may be a rogue, as Pascal Salvini says. God knows, how can I tell? I am only a poor gondolier. So here, then, endeth the volume entitled The Mintage, the same being ten stories and one more, written by Albert Hubbard, the whole done into a printed book by the Roycrofters at their shop, which is in the village of East Aurora, Erie County, New York State, this year of grace, M.C.M.X., and from the founding of the Roycroft shop, the 16th. End of the Master and the End of the Mintage by Albert Hubbard